0: Welcome to Living with Liberty, your source for common sense and truth. I am your Minister of Truth, Ryan. Today we'll talk about canceling student loan debt, Biden's Ministry of Truth, Elizabeth Warren calling for big tech accountability, and a possible start of a recession. Next, on Living with Liberty. get into the content for today. I am excited to announce that Living with Liberty has now gone to video. Video will be available on Rumble. Living with Liberty is the channel to search for. We'll still have the audio-only version available everywhere you've already been listening to the show. We're just adding the video component. We're still up in the air yet as to whether we'll go to YouTube or not. More to come later on that piece. I was involved in an interesting discussion in a friend group about the impact of canceling student loan debt. Any way you look at it, it's not good. Canceling the debt, that is. Especially when you factor in how the easy money the U.S. government has given out in the form of student loans over the past 30 years has already bloated the price of attending college. In the last 20 years, private schools have more than doubled in cost. Well, out-of-state tuition has almost tripled, and the state-in-state tuition costs have nearly quadrupled. The lack of any control over how the feds dole out college loans has led to these massive increases in the cost of attending college. Anytime the government touches something, anytime they get involved in the market, prices go up. We need to look no further than how they've meddled in the health insurance market. Prices have gone up. They've gone up substantially. You hand out a bunch of loans irrespective of the ability to pay it back. Prices soar. College is not immune to the laws of supply and demand. You put a bunch of money out there. People now can see that uh, they can afford college potentially, especially with these loans. They grab the money and go to college. That takes away more, uh, fills up the colleges more. There's less seats available. Prices go up. Pretty, pretty simple. Uh, economics, you know, law of economics. There. Uh, this money that's that's the feds just keep handing out. Like I said, there's low barriers to obtaining it. There's no uh, ability to to, uh, to uh, for the government to look at uh, someone's career. Path that they want to get educated for, let's call it, and and to look at that and take that into account, and to whether they can pay it back or not. They just give the money out. Here's you're going to college. What's the income? Okay, you qualify for for um, student loans. So they give it out, and prices at colleges go up. We now have 1.6 trillion dollars in outstanding student loans, loans that were made with taxpayer dollars, mind you. That's that's money that you and I have loaned out as citizens of this country, we pay the taxes. The government just, well, take that back. They, I guess they do just print it. But at some point, we're on the hook for that money. It's it's tax ta- it's tax taxpayer dollars that have been given out for these students, student loans. And it's these taxpayer-funded loans that the Biden regime wants to cancel the debt on. Now, remember, all debts are paid either by the borrower or the lender. If the Biden regime gets their wish and cancels the student loan debt, the debt's still paid. It's paid by you and me who have already fronted this money for the loans through our taxes and maybe more aptly our children's and grandchildren's taxes that will have to pay back this money that they keep printing because we don't have a balanced budget. One of the other topics we discussed is what about the inflation? How is How does canceling student loan debt in uh, affect inflation. Now, the free money has front-loaded the inflation of college tuition, which we've just gone over the last 20 years. We've seen, depending on whether it's private or in-state tuition or out-of-state tuition, you know, sometimes, uh, like I said, double, triple, or quadruple price. But there was also a question around whether canceling the debt would further inflation. Now, in the broader sense of the economy, the way I look at it, I I don't think so. The money's already been spent. It's been spent on tuition. It's been spent on room and board. It's been spent on textbooks. So the money's already spent there. And one of the assumptions I'm basing this on is if you have somebody that has a lot of student loan debt, they're not paying those loans back now as it is if they're they're seeking to get it canceled. or they are putting off some other um, purchase or something to that effect where they would you know food, I don't know, but the that money's already being spent elsewhere. I mean I, I guess people would be making the a choice between do I eat or do I pay my student loan? I mean, that's pretty easy. You're gonna pay for food, right. So the money's already being spent. It's already allocated in people's budgets, let's call it. So it's not likely that a bunch of cash will be freed up to be spent in a, a different manner within the broader economy. There are those that agree with that sentiment. But I believe the inflation would be much more targeted than the broader economy. I, I don't think it'd contribute much to food or um, the increase in in. Uh, automobile prices, things like that, durable goods, where I would think it'd be much more targeted. Again, it would affect college, and college tuitions would get much, uh, even more expensive, much more quickly. You start canceling debt. What happens? Well, that that money needs to be recouped somehow. And how do you recoup that while well, you increase the the um, the price of admission for college? You think about it in the sense of a of a um, well, it's, uh, you think about it in the sense of a casino, right? The house never loses. If they have a big happen to have a big payout, well, what's going to happen? They somehow will recoup that money through, uh, you know, adjusting the slot machines or doing something like that, or or even more. You think about what happens in our healthcare, right? The people that don't pay in or don't have insurance. Um, eventually end up getting free health care because we have laws that say you can't turn anybody away from health care. So what happens? You and I foot that bill, whether we want to admit it or not, or acknowledge it or not, we're footing the bill for those that don't pay into the system. The same thing would happen with college. If you canceled all that debt, what happens? Well, the price would have to go up. One is a deterrent to... um not take out loans you can't afford right if you start making it much more expensive, people are going to think twice and also because more will need to be repaid back right there there's always a floor and a ceiling on on these prices and if if I'm just giving away free money, what happens well there's there's holes in the budget so you have to inflate the cost and and that would inflate the cost of uh, of everything and yeah, you would see that People would then also, cancel. I mean, canceling debt is, is uh, on a broad scale like that, would, uh, I think, trigger some uh, call more bad behavior, I guess. People would see that the loan debt was canceled, and then they get it in their minds that, well, we could take out loans, that would be canceled as well, because the government, let's be honest, the government... Is eager to send kids to these institutions of higher indoctrination under the guise of a better future, of course. But they they're still eager to get kids through these college courses where they're now being required to take, uh, you know, genders or not gender studies per se, but you know, some sort of diversity study, things like that, things that are are indoctrinating our students and and anti-American. Let's call it that. So. People would get it in their minds. Students would get it in their minds that hey, this debt was canceled. If I wait around long enough and whine, whine uh, loud enough, my debt will get canceled too. They would continue. Then the government, that is, would continue to give out loans with no regard as to the prospects of being uh, of being paid back. Eventually, it ends up as a social program, and taxpayers foot the bill for Bobby's intersectionality of grasshoppers and bumblebees degree. It's a dangerous precedent. I mean, you you have the cost inflating because you have to because now more and more people are going to come in and say, "Oh, well, you're going to uh, foot my bill uh, for my college education." I'm I'll take advantage of that, sure, and then I'll get some useless degree. I won't ever be able to pay this back, and then you just cancel the debt anyway. It's a dangerous precedent. I mean, we have to we have to be cognizant of this. And realize that you take out a loan, you're on the hook for that. that. That that's just how it goes. You you can't just absolve yourself of any accountability to repay back a loan because it ends up being too much. Because you got a degree that didn't have any value to it whatsoever, and now you you're stuck at some you know, job, or you're you're not making you know anywhere near what what that degree. You know what the uh, value is uh, in your career that you would need to have uh, pay back that that college education, that college loan. So it, this just sets a bad precedent. It's it will further just explode the cost of college. It'll eventually it might make it to the point where college then becomes inaccessible to to the people that the, these loans that, that the government wants to give out willy nilly. Are, are supposedly trying to help. I mean, eventually it becomes so cost prohibitive, it becomes inaccessible again. And you, 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 we've just reversed whatever it is what we're, we were trying to do by giving out more loans to, to more people so they can get a college education. Now, how do we slow the increase of college tuition and put boundaries around the loans given out by the government? First, make the loan amount contingent on the ability to pay it back. So what do I mean by that? If the student is going for some degree that is going to have a low marketplace value, i.e. I can't really get a job that pays anything with this unless I get a master's and a doctorate degree, then the loan's granted by the federal government, should reflect that. If someone wants to go and get a basket weaving degree, fine, I'm not going to stop you from that, not, not in the least. But the government should evaluate the ability of the student to pay the loans back and lend our money accordingly. They should look at it and say, look, yes, this basket weaving degree is going to cost you 100000 bucks, but uh, in the reality, and what economically – uh, the economic feasibility of of applying a basket weaving degree anywhere, we have to say, well we 're only going to lend you maybe fifteen thousand dollars that hundred thousand dollars you 're going to need. No more blanket loans for the entire cost of the de- degree program and then some. I leave it If someone wants to go for a, a degree that has no market value whatsoever in order to pay it back, Leave it up to the student to figure out how to finance the rest of it. There's plenty of opportunity out there for things like scholarships and private loans that the student can go, apply for, maybe get to finance a degree. Or, hey, you know what? I want a degree in basket weaving. Then I'm only going to get loans for 15 grand. Maybe I need to work and save up the rest or save up a bunch and work through college. Figure it out yourself. There's no reason that people that don't go to college or went to college and got degrees that are paying their own student loans and they got degrees that are of market value to companies out there and the skills that they're looking to hire should have to pay for someone that went to school because they wanted a basket weaving degree and now they can't pay their loans back. If the student goes to school and says they're going to school for something that's in demand and that has a high ability to pay back the loan in the future, something like engineering, computer science, supply chain, which I'm in, then it may be a better fit to loan the entire amount needed for the degree. Uh, I mean, I have the ability to pay back my student loans because I went and got a degree in something that's marketable and that companies are looking for and are willing to pay for. Uh, This is how it works. I, I think if you take this route, it incentivizes students to go into the fields that are in demand Or they just avoid going to college altogether. Now I'm not saying there isn't a place to go and study things like history, and uh, basket weaving, and you know, say that tongue in cheek. But uh, philosophy, Uh, you know, there's a place for those, and I'm just saying let's let's uh, take and make those uh, the loans for those kinds of degrees. Uh, just the amount given uh, dependent on what the value is of that degree. Now, if you're going for a history degree and, and you're going to be a, a teacher with that, fine, right? I mean, okay, you, you need that history degree to be going, go become a history teacher at the high school level, or you want to go on and get a doctorate and be a professor of history, fine. There's there's obviously a marketable uh, future for that, loan accordingly. But if you're just going for a history degree, because I don't know what else to go to school for. I get my history degree and I'm still, you know, out as flipping burgers somewhere. Well, then we have to look at that. I think if you, you fit the loan amount to the marketability of the degree, it will incentivize students to go into fields that are in demand or, like I said, avoid college altogether. It'll weed those out that are, uh, that really shouldn't have been in college to begin with. Second thing to, to bring down the cost of college is to encourage more students to go into the trades. We have to pull back the, the pressure and the demand on the four-year institutions and send more people, uh, encourage more people, not send them, not communist countries send them. They tell you what you're going to do when you grow up. Uh, but but encourage them to go into in-demand Uh, in in demand industries plumbing electricians welding truck drivers all those are fields that are in demand encourage students that those are viable options they provide a great middle class living standard if you want you can take them multiple ways you can own your own company or you can become part of a large firm or even even manufacturing companies are looking for like pipe fitters and electricians and welders and truck drivers i mean there's a plethora of of options there, all of which are are much more uh, going for any of those is will give a, a student a much more marketable skill. So if we do that, we lighten the the demand on colleges. They, they, they remember they're just they're subject to laws of demand and and supply just like any other good and service. So if you take students out of the, out of the um, circulation, so to speak, of who wants to go to college. You have less demand on entry into the four-year institutions. They will have to put the blue light special out front then and lower those prices just to attract more students. Lastly, courage, uh, encourage kids to take a gap year or two. Spend some time working or finding an apprenticeship. It's not a bad deal. A fair amount of college debt is racked up by the aimlessness uh, aimlessness, on the student's part. I don't know what I want to do. I was just felt under pressure to go to college, so I just picked something. I didn't like it, so I picked something else. And now I'm five years into this. I still don't have a, a direction or a degree, and I'm still working on it. Or I drop out after two or three years with a ton of debt because I didn't know what I was doing or I didn't belong here to begin with. That... That's a, a big part of racking up college debt is just just the lack of focus on what we want to do or what our, you know, what students want to do. We pressure kids to make a decision at 18 what they want to study and devote their life's work or career to. And many have no clue at 18. They, they, they don't have any clue about tomorrow still at 18. And we're telling them here, make a choice that's going to affect the rest of your life. And, oh, by the way, now there's financial consequences to that. Hurry up and go to college. There's no reason to pressure anybody to go to college. You see, I think a year or two to experience what the real world has through apprenticeships, through some sort of other job, will give most students a a different perspective. It gives them as as much of an ability to explore likes and dislikes as going and spending a ton of money on college classes. It'll give them a sense of direction as to what career path they want to take. So it's a, a gap year is a viable option. It's something we should probably encourage more, especially for those. Not all, you know, there's a lot of students that, that see uh, or know what they want to do after high school. There's just as many that don't. And, and some of them, like I said, it's the pressure to go to college. Well, not they, they don't necessarily have to. They might get into an apprenticeship and say, oh, yeah, I like that. And then go to a trade school to, to get the education necessary to boost their pay in that certain field. There, there's a multitude of options. We've, we've focused so much on pushing kids to four-year schools, at least half of which probably shouldn't be going. And, and there are other viable options that we just need to promote more and, and make it known to students that these are viable career paths for you in the future. Okay. Whatever platform you are catching the show on today, please hit that subscribe button. That way you'll get notified when new shows are available. If you are enjoying today's show, please give it a five-star review. And if you can't give it a five-star review, send an email to me, ryan at livingwithlibertypodcast.com. I'll read your less-than-five-star review on the show. We aren't like the censoring leftists here. I don't mind poking fun at myself. We'll have a little comedy, a little fun. I laugh at myself all the time. It's what keeps you humble, I think, keeps you real and, and keeps life real and fun. All right. So right on cue, Elon Musk closes the deal for Twitter, and Democrats lose their minds and start calling for more rules for social media platforms. Elizabeth Warren decided to put this tweet out. She said, or tweeted this, I should say. This deal is dangerous for our democracy. Billionaires like Elon Musk play by a different set of rules than everyone else, accumulating power for their own gain. We need a wealth tax and strong rules to hold big tech accountable. So how does uh, that make Elon Musk any different than a politician? Accumulating power for their own gain and play by a different set of rules. Anyway, we, we'll pick that apart another day. The wealth tax, we'll, we'll pick that apart another day too. There's just so much stupidity here. I'll address, like I said, I'll address a wealth tax in the future. I'll address the different set of rules. Elizabeth Warren seems to think that um, billionaires play by the same. It's the same set of rules that the political elitists play by. Give me a break. Like I said, just so so much stupidity here. It just goes to show how economically inept our elected officials are and, and how, uh, how tone deaf they are, really. Uh, just hypocrites. Anyway, So the point here I want to focus on is this tweet ending with the wanting to hold big tech accountable. The Democrats want to hold big tech accountable because they want it to remain their mouthpiece. They want big tech to be the mouthpiece of the Democrat party. They've had such a stranglehold on it for so long. Now, Musk buying Twitter has opened up the promise of it returning to a town square of sorts where many ideas can be propagated, where everybody's ideas can be put out there without fear of censorship or being pulled down or banned from the platform. Now, that sort of free thinking doesn't comport with the Dems' ethos of controlling everything to control the messaging to make sure that anything that could be a hypocr- or Hypocritical, yeah, and still got that on the brain. Anything that could be critical of what they've done to destroy the country, it needs to be censored in their mind. We need to—they need to erase it. They need to dump it down the memory hole. So because of this, because this—this this, um, uh, Musk buying Twitter—threatens their control of a platform that I think in their minds uh, th- they think they have a right to and they're the only ones with the right to it, they now uh, issue louder and louder calls to hold big tech accountable and to put in place strong rules to make sure big tech is held accountable. Now, funny, the funny thing is here, how, and it's how these calls weren't there when the Hunter laptop story needed to be buried or when 10% for the big guy needed to be buried. Nope. Only now, when the tables have turned and the truth will be allowed to be posted, when people can put out there freely what they uh, think or what they've actually researched, only when things are allowed to be posted that will paint the Democrats in a bad light, even though we already know. I mean, they're already, everybody sees it, right? So it's it's not going to do anything at this point. It's just screaming and yelling. It's a distraction, but... Only now, when the tables have turned and we have a return of sorts to free speech, do the calls for big tech accountability start to come and start to get louder. We've had the Ministry of Enlightenment, the Culture Ministry, Public Department, uh, Publicity Department of the CCP, and now... Joseph Gables Biden gives us the Disinformation Governance Board. Apparently he's, or probably more aptly, someone in his regime have decided that big tech's not doing enough. We're not able to do enough. That pesky constitution's getting in the way. So we need our own censorship board with a director in charge who will tell people what they can and cannot say and can and cannot think. All of these entities exist or existed for one thing and one thing only, to propagandize on behalf of the government, to be the thought police. That's the only reason you have a ministry of enlightenment, a culture ministry. That one's in Russia. That's, I think, still current. That went into place in 2012. And then, of course, we all know about the publicity department of the CCP to to spread their propaganda of how Wonderful they are. And to, oh, you know, don't look behind that curtain or that curtain or that curtain. And, oh, uh, well, okay, you got to, we're going to lock down a city of 20 some million people. The fact is, and this is in relation to our own truth ministry that the Biden regime is trying to put in place, the fact is that the people putting in this place are the biggest purveyors of disinformation. That is, that I guess is funny. Is it ironic? I don't know. But the people putting, wanting to put this in place are the biggest purveyors of disinformation. They're the ones lying to us day in and day out. And it's laughable that they have this idea now to put in place a disinformation governance board. Are they going to utilize it and apply their own uh press conferences to it are they going to run their speeches that they hand to Biden to to proclaim through this disinformation governance board no it's it's just ridiculous how they th- how they th- how they think we're that stupid that we don't see this that it's the liars are the ones setting up a disinformation governance board. And even worse, they're putting a raving lunatic in charge of it. And that should leave no doubt as to the purpose of this latest Ministry of Truth department that is being organized. Now, Nina Jankowitz is a communist who is all in on total government power. Now, check out her tweet uh, just to prove this point. Let's I've got her tweet here from March of 2020 at the beginning of the pandemic. It goes like this. Anyway, long story short, I think we may be too free-spirited to comply with social distancing recommendations unless they're forced upon us. So force away, lock us down. Now imagine how this lunatic, who obviously does not believe one bit in personal freedom or responsibility for that matter, would react or act as the head of a ministry of truth? How would they? How would Nina Jankowitz, What kind of lens would she put around the the posts coming through on social media or the call it independent journalists because we know legacy media will be all in on this? How how would they? How would Nina Jankowitz react to being in charge, to reviewing the truths that people will put out there, that independent journalists who did their research on the facts, how would that ministry of truth with her in charge react when they need to counter the lies, the truths that are being put out there? How would they bend those to counter the lies of the Biden administration? The FBI, the CIA, insert your preferred three-letter agency here. How would she direct that department to handle anything counter to the narrative that's been approved by the Biden regime or the three-letter agencies? Now, the Biden regime claims that its Ministry of Truth is there to battle misinformation. Well, here's the thing. It's not their job to battle misinformation. If we had a functioning media, they would be the ones handling that. It would be the media handling the mis- and disinformation and correcting that and holding government accountable, but they're not. It's the government's role to uphold the Constitution. Not try to insert yet another department in an obvious attempt to circumvent the Constitution because people are saying things that our elected officials and bureaucrats don't like. The Biden Ministry of Truth is being set up because the government doesn't have the independent journalists in their back pocket shilling for them like they do with the trained circus monkeys in legacy media. Biden is setting up the Ministry of Truth to try and rewrite a revisionist history of his utter debacle of an administration. That is the point here, one of them anyway. It wouldn't stop at social media posts, this this Ministry of Truth. It would reach its tentacles into our history books. It would further feed the talking points to the legacy media outlets who would dutifully print and report them as facts on the evening news broadcasts or in their printed newspapers or online newspapers. The Ministry of Truth most certainly would crush the independent journalist outlets. They wouldn't be allowed to speak freely anymore. Everything would be labeled as disinformation or misinformation and scrubbed from the record all all of this all of this i believe part of this ministry of truth that the biden regime wants is an attempt to cover up how awful this presidential administration has been and to further try to implement totalitarian rule in the united states this department and its activities do not survive a legal challenge to its legitimacy as it is in direct violation of the First Amendment. Remember the First Amendment, it says, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or the press. That is the intent of this Ministry of Truth. We the people need to be in the ear of our legislators reminding them of that fact, that they need to take action to uphold the Constitution, that we expect and demand them to uphold the Constitution. Summer is right around the corner, and now is the perfect time to pick up a few new wardrobe pieces. Head over to Living with Liberty Outfitters, where today, through the 6th of May, you will get 15% off your entire purchase. Show off your patriot pride with some new Living with Liberty gear. Head to livingwithlibertypodcast.com and click the store link. All right. We are heading toward a recession. The first quarter GDP numbers are out and they are not good. Growth was a negative 1.4%. Now that is huge. I mean 1.4% of trillion dollars that's huge. And considering we were coming off a fourth quarter of almost 7% growth at the end of and that was at the end of last year the fourth quarter. And the initial estimates of the first quarter were a more robust growth. I think it was somewhere in the 5 to 6% range before the analysts adjusted it down to a 1% growth number. So at one point, a negative 1.4% is huge when you bump it up against what we did at the end of last year and what the initial estimates and even the final estimate was for this quarter, for the first quarter of this year. The economy swung to the negative. from the final estimate, so went from an estimate of growth uh, plus 1% to negative 1.4%, and it swung a whopping negative 9% from where we ended last year. Now naturally, the economic propagandists are out there, one of which being Ian Shepherdson, chief economist at Pantheon Macroeconomics, who wrote, This is noise, not signal. The economy is not falling into recession." Now, as I look at it, all indicators are there for a recession. Yes, you need two quarters of negative growth to declare a recession. That's true. We've only had one. But there are forward-looking indicators that you can look at, that I look at, and they are pointing to a recession. One of those indicators is the freight market. Right now, the freight market is cooling off, and projections are for uh, more softening of the market in the back half of this year. And we're almost halfway through the year, so that's coming up quick. So what does that mean exactly, that there's a softening of the market, that the freight market's cooling off? It means that there's more trucks that are becoming available every day to haul goods, but there aren't goods to haul. There aren't loads to give those trucks. So that in turn is driving down the prices right now of the spot market, so Kind of the spot market is a lot of companies have contracts with carriers to run their regular loads. Uh, and if that carrier can't take it for some reason or there's, uh, call it a special, um, a special uh, load that a company needs to haul, they'll go out to the spot market. So they'll, they'll say, okay, I don't have a contract with you, carrier, but what are you charging uh, in order to take loads from point A to point B? Well, there's a softening in that because more and more trucks are coming available. So there's less and that means there's less freight being hauled, there's less, uh, more trucks, and less freight. You start to see the prices drop. To me, that says we might be at the start of a recession here. Freight is one of those indicators. From a good standpoint, we might be starting to tip towards having an overabundance of inventory. Yes, I realize there are plenty of empty spots on shelves still, and we still have some shortages. And we're still going to have things like this bird flu that's, that's been knocking out uh, chicken, uh, you know, the, the chickens and turkeys and all that. I realize that. They're, you're always going to have that sort of thing happen, though. It just gets magnified because of the times we're in, I think. But those things go on. They're behind the scenes. And, you know, they don't get talked about much except now when, honestly, I think there was somewhat of a panic They're they're trying to drive some sort of a panic out there, but honestly, from what I've seen and my knowledge and what I know, those empty shelves are becoming fewer and fewer in number. We're seeing them more and more uh, products on the shelf. Inventories are growing within companies, so I think there's a recession on on the horizon here because you have when you have inventories growing, demand dropping. Companies, plants, they're, they're not going to want to need want or need at that point as much output from their plants. So I, I think it's on the horizon here. And like I said, I, freight market to me has always been one of those good indicators. You can kind of watch and see. Freight's been really hot for a long time here now. And now it's, we're starting to see it cool. And we're starting to see, and, and we had a, a growth, uh, a negative uh, growth number last quarter. I think it's on the horizon, and then and then you throw in the fact that the Fed is raising rates to combat inflation, right? What happens when you raise interest rates? you see investment decline. So you have the Fed raising interest rates to combat inflation, couple that with some of these other indicators like freight market softening and cooling off. I think you have a recipe for a recession here now we 're already um, um, well, we're quickly approaching halfway through quarter two. So we'll see how quarter two numbers end up here. Um, this would be the second quarter uh, needed to declare a recession. So we'll see how it fin- finishes up. In it. But I think, like I said, with the freight market looking pretty soft at the back half of the year, I think we're we're seeing, we're in that decline right now, how deep it goes and, and how long it goes up for debate. Um, I think, Based on everything going on right now and the incompetence in Washington, it could be a really long and nasty one. Time will tell. All right, before I finish up today, I want to touch on the leaked initial Supreme Court opinion regarding the potential overturning of Roe v. Wade. Now, whomever did this needs to be held accountable. This was done on purpose, and it was done to signal the professional protesters to get ready to descend upon Washington in an attempt to get SCOTUS to change its mind when it comes to their final opinion, which they need to issue. It's, it's an, it's, they want to get the intimidators out there. That, that's why this was leaked. And again, I mean, this just proves, again, that every institution of our government has been corrupted. Every institution has become political Now, my other thought here is that this opinion could open up Pandora's box to challenge other issues that are federal law, but in reality are issues that should be decided on a state-by-state basis. They should have been left at the state level to begin with. And this could be Roe v. Wade because this was supposedly uh, set because there was a constitutional, um, what what do you want to call it, constitutional right? to abortion even though there's no provision in the constitution for such never mind the moral and ethical issues of it just just from a pure legal basis there was no legal basis uh, to have this um, as a as you know a constitutionally guaranteed right it's not in there at all but i think this opens up the the bigger um, a bigger issue here for the left in that this, this opens up the box to take a look at a lot of other federal overreach, uh, a lot of other laws that were, were put on the books at a federal level that really should have been state level, but, you know, weren't challenged or were challenged and upheld because we didn't have um, a critical mass of originalists on the Supreme Court. The left, their whole aim is to centralize government. They want to take the power from the people and the states and transfer it to the federal administrative state to, to have that strong federal central government of control. There are no, like I said, no provisions in the Constitution that uphold abortion as a constitutional right, just like there are many other laws and departments on the books that when looked through a constitutional lens have no justification for their existence. U.S. Department of Education. Anyone? Why? Why is that there? That is the bigger fight here. Is is the the, the fact that this could open up open up the ability to look at some of these other uh, laws? These and that's that's how these other departments came into being. There, there's laws on the books that Congress put in place to start a Department of Education, to start the FBI, to start Department of Homeland Security. Now you, you open this up and, okay, now we can look at those others through this lens of, is there a constitutional provision for them or not? Because I've, I maintain that any department outside the four that are listed in the Constitution should be a constitutional amendments to justify their existence. We never put uh it, it's not call if you think of the constitution as a contract there's nothing in the contract that says we have to have an fbi that we have to have a cia those are laws put on the book and yeah you can go through the whole thing of congress you know makes the laws yada yada but the the thing is is those laws still have to pass muster with what does the constitution say and if the Constitution has no provision for an FBI, has no provision for the right to an abortion, then they need to be challenged through the lens of the Constitution. And because we've been in such the, so much of this progressive mindset over the last hundred and some years, nobody wants to challenge those. It's just, okay, well, accept it and go on. We need it. Well, we don't necessarily need it. There should be constitutional amendments for these other government agencies for the CDC for NIH for abortion honestly if there's a no constitutional provision then there needs to be a constitutional amendment but because no we we've been asleep on on our constitution we leave it up to our our legislators, and and we don't challenge it otherwise. So, I mean, that's the biggest issue here, the bigger fight here, is overturning Roe v. Wade returns us, starts to return us to an originalist intent of the Constitution, a literal intent that the Constitution says what it says. And what the Constitution says and its intent is that we have a weak federal government so that the state and that the state and local governments are, are the most power because they have the most power because they are the closest to the people and have, uh, will have the most impact on the people. But, again, the left's intent is for a totalitarian state. And a totalitarian state cannot have a weak federal government. It has to have a strong federal government. So that's where the, the fight I see the fight going from here. Is kind of getting back to that intentional, uh, that originalist intent of of the Constitution, and opening up this box of being able to look at that originalist intent and challenge some of these other laws and uh, that have been put on the books that have created agencies or just federalized uh, law. Period. Okay, last thing here today. It's a new month, so we need to award the dolt of the month for April. We have many uh, many good, ch- uh, worthy challengers here. We have Max Boot. We had the Yale student trying to, to uh, play gotcha with, uh, with Ted Cruz. But as always seems to be the case, we had someone swoop in at the last minute here and take it. So April's winner is Sean King for his comment about Elon Musk's bid to buy Twitter. And what he said was that Elon Musk's bid to buy Twitter was about white power. Now, mind you, this is coming from the white guy who has made a grifting career out of culturally appropriating blacks, thereby being the very living definition of white power. So congratulations to Sean King, living with liberty's dolt of the month for April. Friends, that's my show for today. Thank you for listening. Please check out my website, livingwithlibertypodcast.com. There you'll find links to my past shows, my original articles, as well as other resources to help arm you with knowledge and fighting off the prevailing narratives of the day. While on my website, shop my store, Living with Liberty Outfitters. Lastly, I'd be so grateful if you shared, subscribed, and left a positive review of the show, should your listening platform allow. Subscribing helps us move up the charts and helps more people find the truth. I appreciate you spending part of your day with me. Please help us spread the truth by sharing my show and website with friends and family, as well as on your social media accounts. My website is livingwithlibertypodcast.com. Also, let's connect. Follow me on Parlor. My handle is at livingwithliberty. You can also email me. The address is ryan at livingwithlibertypodcast.com. Liberty isn't a given. We must fight to protect it. Working together, we will do exactly that. Until next time.